Hi, I'm Ben Richardson, and you're listening to the Karate Podcast, where we talk about karate, the competitive sport of Kumite, and the warrior's journey. Brought to you in association with Kumite Coach, the world's first progressive online high-definition coaching platform, created by coaches and fighters for coaches, fighters, and students of karate. Join KumiteCoach.com today and take your karate to the next level. Okay, guys, welcome to another episode of the Karate Podcast. I am super excited to have with us today uh, Natalie Williams, who is a two-times WKF World Bronze Medalist, a two-times WKF European Silver Medalist, a two-times University World Championships winner, a multiple Commonwealth Games champion and the winner of multiple national titles in Britain. She's one of the top competitors we've produced as a country. And um, she's the name that all of my uh, karate athletes have mentioned as one one point of inspiration to them and someone they look up to in the sport. So it's really fantastic to have you with us, Natalie. Thanks so much for joining us. That is such an intro. I love it. <laughs> it's brilliant. All, all in one breath as well. <laughs> um so would you would would you tell us how you um got into the sport and what more importantly what what events or experiences led you to becoming a fighter within the sport of karate so my uh history comes from probably a lot of what the um a lot of karate family basically my dad was my karate instructor so there wasn't really any choice <laughs> you yeah, just yeah. my older brothers do karate um my cousins do karate everybody in my family just kind of navigated to it so when you became of age after years of sitting and uh, my mum used to do the admin for our karate club as well so after years of sitting and watching my brothers kick and punch um yeah I became six and a half my dad was like right time for you to get in as well and I think probably because I was a bit of a moany child and I used to whinge a lot when my younger brother used to hit me yeah. My parents are like, we just need to do something to toughen her up. So get her into karate. Um, so that's how I kind of started getting into the sport anyway, introduction through family. Um, and in our club, my dad was very, very um, adamant that you needed to practice both kumite and kata. Right. So, you went, so even when we did competitions as children, you did both. You, there wasn't a choice. You had to do both. Sure. And as I got a little bit older, I got to the, probably about 15, 16 um, and started competing in more high-level tournaments. Um, and actually, because of the style that I do, which is um, a mix of Kokushinkai, Wadaru, Gojiru, and Shotokan, um, oh, really? a lot of our catters are Kokushinkai catters, which aren't on the WKF list. So oh. I didn't really have the option to compete with the catters that I did as Kokushinkai catters in, in WKF tournaments. Um, so I kind of just naturally navigated towards doing Kumite and then... Uh, I think once your training picks up to get to that level, you're trying to get to the national, international level, it's hard to balance the two. Yeah. To train yeah. both the Kumite and the people who do it in the world, I just hats off to you if you can compete at that level in both. Um, but I think I got to the point where my dad was like, you need to choose and you need to kind of decide what you're going to do. And I chose Kumite and uh, haven't looked back. Yeah, fantastic. Um, and so coming from a traditional background in karate, um, was it very much that you spent a long period as a junior competing? Um, did you find that you were, you've always got results as a competitor? Or is it something that came at a certain age to you where you, you found that 
you know, you've just kind of gone up a gear and suddenly you're winning more and more? Um, I think from a competitive perspective, it was just the norm. So I do remember my first competition. I was probably six, probably seven. And we were a member of an association called BASCA. Right. So and BASCA was a really, really big um, association group. And their tournaments were almost the equivalent of what the national championships have been over the last couple of years, just like hundreds and hundreds of competitors. Um, and so I grew up on this really big circuit that we used to compete, compete on all the time. Um, and was just used to it. It was just the norm. I didn't know anything else other than competition. So having the nerves and stuff as a child, you did, I had it maybe the first time I did it. And afterwards, it's like, okay, we compete. You get through as many rounds as possible. If you lose, there's no repertoire. charge. You're just out and you have to sit down and watch everybody else fight. So you don't want to be there doing that. <laughs> and um, you get into the mindset of just winning. And mm. I think my dad, one of the things my dad used to say to me all the time, because we wore red geese, so our karate suits were, were red oh, wow. with black stripes on the side, very, very different. Yeah. And my dad always used to say to me, everyone's always looking at you and they're laughing at you because you, you're wearing red and everybody else wears white in traditional karate. So you need yeah. to go out and prove yourself and make sure you win. And I think that mindset has, had always sat with me as a child. Um, so I think I had success quite young and you were just used to it because it's just, you know, winning becomes a habit for you. Um, but the moment I stepped into the real national level, which was under the, e, the e, at the time, the EKGB. Yeah. And there was like WKF rules. I, I think I was 15 and I went to my first nationals and I lost first round. And I hadn't lost, I think, a tournament since I was maybe eight or nine years old. Right, right. So I remember how crushing that was in the reality because I just couldn't work out how I'd lost. I was like, I always win, how's, it, how's this happened? And my brother sat me down and was like, right, you have to sit down and watch how these girls fight. They fight different to how we do on our circuit and you have to adapt to this. Mm. Um, and so a year of training, changing the way that I, and I used to fight at the time and, and then coming back and then winning it the following year wow. kind of got me back into that winning kind of state afterwards. That's quite a turnaround from... Uh... Yeah, it's, it's, I, I, but I do remember those key moments. My first tournament being like six and a half or seven and coming out to fight, being really nervous and getting kicked in the face and bawling my eyes out because I was just like, I've just never been hit like that before yeah. unless it's been my brother, <laughs> my sibling. And then the other key moment was being at the, at the Nationals and it was in Crystal Palace and competing and losing and could not being able to process why I'd lost yeah. and how that feeling of, of not being successful in something that you're so comfortable having success in Mm. Um, and that you have to go back and now you have to train harder and work harder to make sure you stay there yeah that's really interesting that um you know you, you seem to be or seem to have had a lot of focus even at a young age then to be able to deal with that because that would obviously put a lot of people off um like you say going from that constant success to suddenly losing but you yeah. have uh, I mean was it is is there a heavy in family in, influence there in terms of preparing you for that next year I think just I think probably competitive drive right is it was probably the the key one um and also my yeah the influence of my older brothers mm. being involved in my training as well and um also being competitive with my siblings and in our club so it was very competitive in my club but I was also very competitive with my brothers as well yeah. even though they were so much older than me my younger brother had 
I think he just hit puberty. So he was starting to grow, even though he's three years younger than me, he'd grown to pretty much my size. So yeah. I had the perfect training partner right. and nothing's better than when you have to, you know, step on the line with your, with your, your family. Cause when you fight, it's a different type of dynamic yeah. of competition. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and did you, do you recall, was there a shift in the way you trained to prepare for that next year or did you just train harder or longer or what? Do you know what? I think it was also an introduction, yeah, a different type of training. So I, when I was about 14, so this is before, this is maybe just oh, just before I'd done my first nationals, I went on a training camp. So we were part of an association at the time called BKMF under Carl Finn. And uh, we went on a training camp weekend <clears throat> that I was really upset about because it was on my birthday. And I was just livid with my parents. I was why I'm doing crying on my birthday. It's not fair. It's not fair. But I ended up having one of the best weekends of my life. So now, in hindsight, it was great. And on that camp was Wayne Otto, Molly Samuels, and the Francis family. Yeah. So it was the first time I was exposed to that level of international karatekas. And I remember um, the training at that time. And so this was probably two years before the English. The training was really intense and really hard. It was a different type of training than I, that I'd been used to at my club. Um, and after we, I'd lost at the, that nationals, I then went up to go and train with Wayne Otto, try mm. and get there at least like twice a week, twice a month. And Wayne had a training night on a Wednesday that was open to anybody who wanted to go. And it was in, a, in Crouch End. Now I live in South London near Crystal Palace. So yeah. you can imagine how hard it is to get to Crouch End in North yeah. London. It's a good like hour and a half, two hour drive, but we would go up and start, I would start training there. And at the same time, I was looking to kind of progress onto the national team. So I was also traveling to Barking in Essex to, to train with Tiki Donovan as well for some invitational things. Um, so just by association of who I was around, my training just automatically changed because mm. I was in a, just a different realm training with, with I'd say, uh, more experienced people on an international level. Yeah, fantastic. And um, I'm presuming, therefore, that your dad, as your coach, was very open to you training with just whoever you could in order yeah. to get to the best level. One hundred percent. And my dad was right. You need to. You need to go training. You need to go here. So and so says you can go train with them. Go. There was never any. No, no, you can't train here or holding on to the athletes. My dad was like, you need to train. I mean, even as a process through to do gradings in our dojo, you have to have eighty percent attendance. And if you can't train at your club that's local to you, then you need to go and train at one of the other sister clubs within the same group. Sure. And that might be run by different instructors, but you have to get the training to maintain your level. So my dad's always been for, yep, you need to go there, go there. And if, if you haven't been, why haven't you been? And so, yeah, I've always had that support and never, it's never been an issue. Fantastic. Um, with, your, with your goals as a, a fighter, and obviously you've progressed in your career, but has there been a big shift for you mentally in, in your goals as, as your career has gone on? Um, or have you always um, been, I want to be the best or I want to, I want to win or what, what goes on for you when it comes to competing? I think it's, you go through, I think this is my 20th year competing internationally. Wow. So I've been on, I've been competing for England since I was 18 and now I'm, I'm 38 now so this is the final year hopefully <clears throat> and retirement after this um but at the beginning you're 
I'd say your goal is you're still trying to find yourself. So you want to win and you're obviously you're going there to win, but everything's new. And so you're in a different world of exploring where you are. I think when I hit my late twenties, like mid to late twenties, I was quite lucky because I had a, quite a lot of success at the beginning of my career based on the pool of athletes that I that were on the national team at the time. You know, I had um, like Leon Walters, Tanya Weeks, Katrina Lowe, Jason Legister, Rory Daniels, Craig Burke, Paul Newby. All these people were like world and European medalists. Yeah. And it was just the norm for you to get a medal when you went to a European or a world. Plus, Tiki was a national coach at the same time. And so was Wayne, Ian Cole um, as assistant coaches. So my first Europeans, I never forget going and being so embarrassed and upset because I didn't come away with a medal. So I was 18, I've gone away with Patricia Duggan, Tanya Weeks, Andrew McLean, Diane Riley, all these legend fighters. Yeah. And I've, forget the fact that I've gone through rounds and I lost going into the repercharge fights as well. We had maybe like four, four or five fights that day, but I still, I did, still didn't come away with a medal and everybody else on the squad had a medal. <laughs> and I was so upset and I was so embarrassed. But I was like, oh my God, maybe I'm just not good enough to be here. You know, like, how, 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 do you man- like, how do you manage that? So go away, train harder, come back next year to try to get, make it into the female team and to try and get a medal. And so I think with that attitude, what, what I found was every year, my fighting was getting better and better and better and better. Yeah. And then obviously with that, your confidence starts growing. Um, and then you see a, a shift with, those who've been at the top who have been successful, they start dropping off or they start leaving or and the next generation of athletes come through. And yeah. that's how the success wheel sort of changes. There's very few that manage to stay up there for like, you know, more than about maybe seven or eight years with, in terms of consistency. Yeah. And so um, I think for me, it was at the beginning, just finding yourself, then getting to that level. And then, like I said, when I hit my late twenties, probably you kind of felt like, okay, this is where I'm supposed to be. And now I can get any medals, not an issue. It's fine. I can just go out and perform. And as long as I perform well, then I can have my successes. And I think you kind of carry that through until like my early 30s. And then I've had like a period out. And then now I've come back. So my mindset's a little bit different than it was before. It's maintaining, trying to get back to where you were in terms of your standard. Um, And also going back to rediscovering what you could do before. Sure that naturally came instinctively to you because sometimes you forget that you can just do something but because you haven't done it for a while you forget that you could do it yeah so it's that constant like rediscovery journey that you're that you're going through I think from a competitive perspective yeah and I mean I guess as I I found as a competitor that there was various levels of pressure depending on who you were fighting what the competition was uh, maybe gaps between competing or you know if you got injured etc how do you deal with with pressure yourself? Do you use that to to push you on, or have there been times where you've you've come up against a, a challenge and really struggled? You ultimately come out the other side. I think a lot of fighters struggle with the sort of mental side of the game. And if, would you mind sharing your thoughts around that for us? I, do you know what? I don't think I have the perfect formula for it. I think if I did, then I'd boil it up and I sell it <laughs> if I could. Um, but I think it changes. And I, what I find is that it's almost like, like a lottery. You know, we, with the people that I work with at the moment, um, I'm doing a lot of work with um, two particular coaches right now, Glenn um, Middleton and Mervyn Etienne. 
And we talk a lot about in our training about the state of being in a certain state where you're able to perform just all the time. Yeah. And um, I had a great conversation with a, um, the Taekwondo coach of Norway, yeah. where we got into a discussion of what a definition of an elite athlete was. And his, he said that the definition of an elite athlete is someone who can perform on demand. No matter what stresses are going on, no matter what you're upset about, that you know you have a job to do and you can pick up and you can just perform. And I think there's elements in my career where that's just happened and it's happened instinctively. Yeah. And then there's times when you will struggle and you have to kind of find a process and go to a place that you normally wouldn't go to make you have that same performance at that elite level. Um, so it's not necessarily always about winning or losing. It's just ensuring that you're performing at your, your, your best capability because anything can happen in a fight when you're in it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but I say now that I think I'm a lot less, uh, I suffer from a lot less stress in yeah. terms of in terms of fighting because like I said you're trying to have that discovery journey at the beginning of who you are what you can do what you're capable of and then they say you have your 20s trying to find yourself and in your 30s you know who you are so I think when you like you kind of get there and you're like I can, actually I know what I can do and what I can't do and I know how I want to train and I know how I want to do these things and you can direct things a bit more um to ensure that when you're doing training sessions you get the right feeling that puts you in the place where you want to be to perform elite yeah, absolutely. And, and for you, uh, what does that look like? Are you someone that needs to be fired up? Are you someone that needs to be happy and calm? You know what? It can vary and it oh, varies really? on circumstances. Yeah. So there'll be times when I've gone to tournaments and we're just having a laugh with the guys on the team and everything is just banter. And you might have like a lottery and you say, right, anyone who's going to score this technique, like th this is what's going to happen. We used to have a kitty years ago where you'd get fined if you didn't if you didn't train in your gum shield or if you walked into the dojo and forgot to bow in training if any of those things happened you used to get like a, a euro or a pound fine and at the end of the um tournament whoever that all the money that was in the kitty whoever got the most medals would be the person who take the kitty home yeah but there'd also be the caveat that whoever scored the particular golden technique could also take the kitty home so you could have banter with your teammates and be really relaxed and still perform or you could be, right, I'm in war mode and I'm just going to kill anyone who's in front of me and still have the performance there as well. Yeah. So I don't think, for me particularly, there's any uh, set in stone route. I think it's just when I'm enjoying myself, whichever way that may be, whether I'm really, really focused or I'm having a laugh with my coach or I'm just relaxed. Um, and I think you kind of know when you're in the moment. You just feel that you're in the moment and you're just like, everything's going to happen what's going to happen is going to happen today and it's just going to be enjoyable yeah yeah great um could i just ask you a little bit about um the people surrounding you that have supported your career um might not just be your coaches but how how have those roles changed over the years and are they different now uh, after the break to they were before the break uh, what what sort of roles of support are around you um i think at the beginning the difference was the structure was different in especially in the uk in england it was there was more of a support structure in terms of the squad and the team just because we were funded so yeah. as funded athletes um i spent more time with the guys on the team than i did with my own family because every i think twice a month there was a national training in the weekend and once a month you'd be away at a competition competing so if there's four weekends in the month 
there's only one weekend that you spend time with your family and the rest you're spending with the national coaches and your teammates. So um, ironically, the support network for a lot of what you did came from the people you were fighting and and training with. Um, You get really close with some of the teammates. uh, You see each other laugh, you see each other cry, you see each other at your worst and you see each other at your best. Um, But outside of that, my family has been probably the biggest rock, my parents definitely. Um, I think for years, but even before I was born, my dad was traveling all over the country for competitions or whatever. So, you know, getting up on at four o'clock in the morning on a Sunday to go to a tournament in Sheffield, pack up the car and we go and it's just what my parents did. It's just what we do. Um, And I think I've always been very lucky that I've had great relationships with uh, a lot of the coaches who've been throughout my career. where they've, I felt they've always been really supportive of where, I've, where I'm going, where I've gone. And I've always learned something new from everybody, even though they've all got totally different coaching styles. Yeah. And um, so <clears throat> I'd say for me, especially a big shout out probably to Wayne Otto, because when I met him, I was like 13. He's been a constant influence in my life all the way through. Um, and also to like to the Tony twins as well, and Ian Cole, those guys that I've, I've been, and you know, I've got their numbers where I pick up a call. I'm going to speak to them for a good maybe six, seven months, but I can pick up and call and say, right, this is what I'm thinking and I'm struggling with this. Yeah. And so to have someone who's been at that level, understands it and gets it, and you can have a dialogue with them about how you're feeling yeah. is just, I think, really invaluable. Um, and that, that has changed over the years, depending on who's involved. Um, and I think now, right now, in my last kind of run in preparation for the Olympic qualification, the team I'm working with now, Mervyn Etienne's very much involved, have conversations with Vic Charles. Wayne is still influential in what's in some of the stuff that I've go, is going on. And um, like at the beginning of January, because of the restrictions on training here, it was better for me to jump on a plane and go to Norway for five weeks right. and train there and yeah. to just have the ability to do what you needed to do. Yeah. And But I wouldn't be able to get that unless I'd had the support of someone who is able to, to be in a position to kind of offer that. Yeah, fantastic. And how has your training changed at all? Obviously, COVID's impacted everyone in terms of their training, but with the shift towards the Olympics, have, have things changed uh, for your training that would have differed to previous, say, world championships or European championships? I'd say the biggest one for me was when the Olympic cycle started, perhaps what, about four years ago, three and a half, four years ago. I hadn't done SNC before. That wasn't like strength and conditioning in karate was not really a thing. Yeah. Not not in the UK, not really in the UK. Um, and I think you needed to have a very specialist knowledge in how to do that and to work with the right coaches who understood who understood how karate worked as a sport. Yeah. And to find that in um, in coaches from a, a sports science perspective is very rare in, in in especially in the PT world what you end up finding is a lot of people are, are, are qualified as PTs, but they'll be trying to get you to do exercises that are not relatable to your sport. Yeah. Because they might, they just think that if you squat and you do this, that you go in this direction, it's fine. So you really have to have someone who's qualified and gets it. And I'm really lucky because I've got two people. Um, uh, one girl who's worked <clears throat> with the Paralympic team uh, a few years ago, and also a guy who's doing, currently finishing off his master's as well who is a karateka instructor doing his master's in sports science. So right. they, I'm, I'm covered across the, the breadth because they both get it. 
yeah. and they can have a dialogue to work out this is we've looked at your training videos this is what you need to do we need to be able to get you to kick faster we need to get you to move to the right faster so you can do a back leg march here so this is what we're going to do is we're able to do it so that there's more science i think involved in my training now than i've ever had before yeah fantastic. definitely that sounds great um so before we get on to your many successes, could you share with us uh, some of the bigger challenges you faced and maybe there's a challenge out there you feel that all fighters from the UK face more than others, um, but anything around that that you, your experiences with challenges? I think where I've been really lucky, I've always managed to have a career, a professional career outside of karate. Right. And the way that the sport is set up in, in the UK is that sport in the UK is private. So you have to have, uh, to be able to compete now on a WKF circuit, you have to have money to be able to afford to do it because it's very expensive right. to have to travel to so many countries every month to yeah. be able to compete. In addition to that, you have to have a very um, uh, fluid and supportive job that allows you to do that as well, or a company that understands where you're, what you're trying to achieve. And if you don't have that, it's, it's just not possible. And I think that's what the hardest thing is that you see in the UK is that you lose generations of fighters because the sports become so much more expensive. When I started 20 years ago, you literally just had two sets of hand pads and a chest guard and a gun shield. Yeah. And that's all I carried in my kit bag. Whereas now I have red and blue pads and hand pads and foot pads, a body armor, a chest guard, three or four geese, depending on what the rules are. So now it's a lot more expensive to compete at a high level. Yeah. than it was before yeah. um, and the time required to maintain success at a senior level is a lot harder than at junior level because at junior level I think it's those who train harder or those who train more frequent have more success sure. when you hit senior level everybody trains professionally pretty much minimum 10 sessions a week so yeah. what differentiates you is the, res the other resources that you have and I think that's probably the hardest thing that a lot of guys on the national team suffer with is, is, is the finance because it's you have to get, travel to go away and compete. Previously, that would be a weekend tournament. You leave on a Friday, you fight Saturday, Sunday. You come home Sunday night. You can be back at work on Monday. Whereas now, you lift it, the registration takes place on a, on a Wednesday or a Thursday. Tournaments over three or four days. So now you have to take a week off of work to be able to go and compete. Whereas before, you could do it over a weekend. Yeah, that's tough. So um, if, you're, if you're at that level and you have to compete at those tournaments to maintain your world or, or European rankings, you need some sort of support to do that, some sort of mechanism. And um, like I said, I've been very lucky. I've worked at really great companies that have been like, you're going to go for karate? Cool, you just go. Just let us know. Right. You can take X amount as holiday. You can take X amount as working from home. And as long as I could manage my job, it was fine. Um, but if you're not in a company that can that has that ability to do that, that's where that's where you have to that you have to struggle because you have to pick and choose what you can attend and go to. Yeah, yeah, that's tough. Um, fantastic. Um, with regard to your own training, could you run us through a typical week? What what does it look like for Natalie Williams? Um, high level, very high level. Um, so uh, probably four to five karate sessions in the week, and that will consist of. Uh, uh, fighting sparring rounds, um, specific repetition drills, mm. movement drills, um, scenario work, 
Um, and that could be like one session you'll just we'll just work on legs or one session we're just going to work on gazami for the whole session and that's all we're going to work on one session we might just work on gag but you'll they'll all be calculated so i've got a coach that puts together a program of what and in a four-week block of what we're going to work on yeah <clears throat> then i'll have usually two strength and conditioning sessions that will be tailored around what we're doing in karate um i do uh two to three stretching sessions a week and probably at the moment not so much now but previously before lockdown um one or two cognitive performance sessions where you're doing some mental training yeah. to make sure that you're in that right state for when you have to compete yeah fantastic and how how important do you feel the, the cognitive training is because it's still really not that widely done in karate I don't think. yeah really important i mean we do cesar for a reason <laughs> Yeah. At the beginning and the end of the session and so many and because i come from a traditional background i understand why we do it but if you haven't trained if you spent trained at maybe a sport club that only focuses on sport and you've never done that traditional side then you may not do mocks or you may not have to close your eyes and sit there for 10 minutes and reflect on what you've done in the training session so for me it's definitely something that's i think is really key um but it's not so well known and it's not necessarily something that's properly that's really practiced yeah and i think and i think that some of the reason for that is because in traditional training you have a lot of that anyway when you're doing your key on when you're going up and down the dojo and you're trying to make sure that your technique is perfected but better than the person who's next to you and yeah. better than the person on the other side you're kind of in that state anyway but if that's not something you do traditionally in your training, I think, therefore, you can't relate to it as much. Yeah. Yeah, great. Um, do you have a pre-performance routine that you, you do before you fight? Um, I used to have a real, like a really, 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 like, so my routine used to be in the morning, I'd wake up. Um, so the night before, and this is, this is I can't believe I'm going to say this, so I'd always shave my legs the night before for the aerodynamic purposes. That's what I'm thinking in my mind. <laughs> they can kick faster if I could do that. <laughs> then um, in the morning, I like to get up, uh, usually go down for breakfast in the hotel, have my breakfast, and then come back up to the room and get ready. Um, chill in my room, uh, go through everything. I pack, usually pack my bag the night before the tournament um, for when I'm competing, so everything's packed and ready. And I literally will lay all my clothes out. So everything's, I just wake up and I just have to do the basic things I need to do to get ready. Um, and then I shut the door and I walk down and I put my headphones in and I try not to talk to anybody until I get to the stadium. Right. Because I just don't want to have any any real dialogue with anybody because that, that's my process of trying to focus on what I'm doing. Okay. Um, and then when I get to the stadium, I like to walk into the stadium, see the stadium first and then make my way down to the warm-up area. And just find an area in the warm-up area where I've got space to do what I need to do. Or sometimes you've got to create the space, just push people's bags out the way, do what you've got to do to make your own area. And, and I always go down probably about two hours to an hour and a half before and just have at least like 10, 15 minutes just soaking up the atmosphere in the room. Because hmm. there's always people who go down there early and they start warming up two hours before their category is ready to do. And some people come down 10 minutes before and do what they're doing. But yeah. I like to have that just to be in the in the moment to be ready and then um then i'll go through my warm-up routine and then go through the process of what i want to do to be able to perform and speak with my coaches yeah and were you the type of fighter that checks out the draws or do you just walk up to the mat and see who's there 
I don't, I don't check the draws. I don't, I just, because my coach, he can do that. He yeah. can work out that sort of stuff for who's going to be in the draw. And we can have that dialogue when I'm in the warm up area. But before that, it's not something that I ever really personally like and, and a fan of doing. And I get it because some people really like to check their draws. They like to plan and they'll, they'll process the strategy and that's part of their mental process. Yeah. But for me, it's, you know, me and my coach will have that conversation when we're in the warm-up area. Sure. And would it impact you if you had, I don't know, a top-ranked fighter versus an unknown? Would you approach the fight then differently mentally or do you just go um, the same mindset? No, I don't think I approach it differently because what I find is no matter who you fight, everybody fights you different to how they fight everybody else. Right, that's interesting. Yeah. And no one ever fights you the same as they would someone else. Yeah. They've always, everyone's always got key techniques, their favourite techniques to do, and everyone has a style, but no one ever fights exactly the same to every person exactly the same. It's just not, it's just not, it's just, because karate is too organic and it's too fluid. Yeah. So, yeah, I think when you could, me personally, if you spend time trying to, think about that all the time well they've got this really good i've got to watch out for that or i've got to think about that then you're thinking about the wrong things before actually doing the fight and enjoying it yeah that's 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 a great way of looking at it um okay can you uh give us uh your experience some of your you know the the moments in competition that really stand out for you as a competitor obviously you've had lots as i read out at the beginning but um, are there other points in your career look back and go, man, I can't believe I did that or that's the best thing ever? Um, I think oh, my first medal was in the women's team at the European Championships. And I, I got top scorer of the team. I think I scored a minimum of like maybe eight, eight or seven points around. Wow. Um, and so, and it was just like at that point when I was really finding myself and I was fighting all these heavyweight people, all these heavyweight women that were twice my size, but I was still able to beat them and just, just had a different level of confidence because the team we had at the time was just so good. And, um, and I just remember on that day feeling invincible, looking to my left, looking to my right and saying, right, we've got this today. Even if I lose, the other two girls are going to win. So, and then you just go out and you just win all the time. So it was, it was great. And so I definitely remember that moment because it was my first time that I'd got a medal. And I think I've been competing for, I think I'd done a junior Europeans, a senior Europeans, a junior Worlds, a junior Europeans. And it was my second senior Europeans. So I'd done, it was my first, it was my, my fifth international major event before I'd got my first medal. Right, right. And so, yeah, just, the, just to prove to yourself that, you know, if you keep going, it does, the results do come. Um, so that was my first one. I think uh, World Universities in New York. No, World Universities in Mexico. Um, <coughs> I won the final eight nil, and I just—it was just—it was a really great trip. The entire trip with the people that I went with was so much fun. It was a really small squad. We had loads of laughs, and it was just—it was just—it was just a great trip all round, specifically for me. And I think at the time also there was me, me and the other. My team at Katrina, there was only two of us in the women's team and we managed to get bronze. And the only reason we lost in the final, in the semi-finals, because we didn't have a third fighter. And oh, so we no. lost on points. <laughs> that was it. Oh, no. Otherwise we would have made it to the final. So yeah, definitely. Um, and then I think 
some other key moments were the my bronze medal at the Worlds in 2010 in Serbia. And um, just because the preparation for that tournament was so, for me, just felt so long. We'd, we'd committed as a squad to train for every weekend for maybe four months before the tournament. And so we'd, for every weekend, we'd travel to Birmingham to train with Wayne on a Saturday. And we'd get up really early, like drive the two and a half hours. He'd have us doing sprints in the park. It's the first time I'd ever lifted weights in my life. Yeah. It was like, it was such intense drills, but it was such a great program because by the time we got home and then you had, you knew what you had to do over the next six days before you went to training the following week. And if you didn't, if you didn't do what you needed to do, you felt that you'd lost the gains by the time you came back the following week. So it was a real great preparation. And it was just like, we it's taken us, I remember looking at the medal and thinking, this has been like four to five months of intense work to produce this so this is what it takes to make sure that you just to get this at this level um i think uh, uh another moment was bronze medal at the europeans um in budapest 2000 2015 2014 um and that was i had gone out first round had not had a great start came through in the repercharge um, performed really, really, really well. And I remember it was the first time that in the warm-up area, I'd grabbed, uh, I grabbed two guys, Jordan Thomas and a guy called Tom Hickman. He was a junior world champion at the time and Jordan was just kind of up and coming. And I grabbed them and I was like, I need you two to warm me up to get me to where I need to go to do this. And they did, and they did a great job. And then I went out and just right. kind of won it. And I remember taking the middle back and being like, these two guys are the ones who've really pushed me through this. That was great. So those are, those are the key ones that stand out to oh. me where they've been like, yeah, that's, that's, that's a great one. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, and what, what aspirations and what, what goals do you have now for yourself? Um, so we have the European Championships in eight weeks, I think, end of sort of like towards the middle of the tail end of May. Um, that's, that's the first step. Yeah. Uh, the qualification event for the Olympic Games is in due to be taking place in Paris, pending COVID with what happens here. We're just kind of up in the air, but your the goal mm. is to still work towards the goal. Um, so the qualification event, do the qualification event, do the Olympics, and then dust off the gloves and be like, done. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Um, do you have any advice for up-and-coming fighters that are coming through the ranks now? Um, I would say that it doesn't, it doesn't have some people, it happens instinctively like that. They can go to their first international event or their first tournament and they win a medal and they have a really good performance and they have a great success. Um, but it's about the long game. It's yeah. very much about the long game and everyone's path in this sport is different to someone else's. Um, there's many times I've gone with teammates and they've had great performances and I haven't, or I've had a great performance and they haven't. But everybody's on a different journey and you should never compare your journey to anybody else's because yours is definitely unique to you um, and if you have a goal of something that you want to achieve you just have to keep working towards it because everything's about incremental goals and like I said it took me five major European and world tournaments before I came away with my first medal yeah and where I'd gone away with one of my teammates she'd won the Europeans the first time we went out 
and I could, and then but after that everything changes and as long as you keep working hard your success is going to come it's all about those who work hard fantastic Natalie thank you so much for uh joining us today it's been really interesting to hear your story no problem thank you for having me absolute pleasure thanks so much um wish you all the best for the coming months and every success with the europeans in the qualifier in paris and she'll be brilliant thank you very much thank you so much it was really great really great talking to you as well cheers thanks ben pleasure, pleasure. thanks